Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Steven Siegel. And I'm your host here on New Books in History. And today we'll be talking with Chet Van Duzer, who is the author of a new book. His book is called Martin Waldseemuller's Carta Marina of 1516, Study and Transcription of the Long Legends. This book is published by Springer, and it is an open access book uh, published in 2020. So a little bit about Chet Van Duzer. He is a researcher in residence currently at the John Carter Brown Library and a board member of the Lazarus Project at the University of Rochester, uh, which brings multispectral imaging to cultural institutions around the world. Chet is a historian of cartography and has published extensively on medieval and Renaissance maps. His most recent books include the Work for a King, Pierre de Sellier's Map of 1550, published in 2015 by the British Library, and Henricus Martellus's World Map at Yale. This is a map from 1491, Multispectral Imaging Sources and Influence, and this was also published in 2018 by Springer. He recently completed a David Rumsey Research Fellowship at Stanford University and the John Carter Brown Library at, at my alma mater, Brown University, studying Urbano Monte's manuscript, World Map of 1587. His current project is a book about cartographic cartouches. So, uh, Chet Van Duser, welcome to our podcast today. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really a joy to talk to a fellow historian of, of cartography, and I hope uh, we don't get too esoteric, um, but the maps that you have researched and, and the Waldseemuller map that you just wrote your book about are, are absolutely fascinating to me. I, I'll just start with a general question about how you came to be interested in, in this specific map 
and, and what your book is about and, and maybe what prompted you personally to start studying the history of cartography? Well, I'll, I'll take your second question first, which is what uh, prompted me to study the history of cartography. It was actually a very specific moment. Uh, I was in the Vatican Museums in Rome uh, purely as a tourist, and they had on display a 15th century manuscript of Ptolemy's geography. And uh, there had been added to that manuscript in about 1530, a world map. Uh, and that map has a very interesting hypothetical southern continent. It has a very interesting shape. It's a ring of land around the South Pole with open water at the pole. And it also has a large number of place names on it, even though it is declared twice to be terra incognita. So that that moment in 1997 uh, sparked my interest in the history of cartography. And uh, the, the focus of a lot of my work has been uh, the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, uh, and as to what sparked my interest in the card arena, uh, well, it was at least in part its uh, acquisition by the Library of Congress through a uh, generous donation by the J.I. Kislak Foundation, uh, who acquired the map uh, from a prince in Germany and then donated it to the, the Library of Congress. And uh, as you know, the, the map is, is very large and detailed. It's printed on 12 sheets and has many, many, many descriptive texts on it. And this project struck me as a way to, to make the map available to scholars in a way that it simply hadn't been before. Uh, first, by transcribing the Latin texts on the map. Second, by translating them into English. And third, by uh, determining their sources as far as possible. So uh, really, my goal with the project was to, to open a window into the cartographer's workshop, into Martin Waldtomato's workshop, to see how he went about making the map. So let's start with Martin Waldseemuller himself. The book is about his cartographic thinking. What, how would you describe his, his thinking about cartography and his assembly of, of sources? I think in the book, you, you do a wonderful job giving readers almost a, an inventory of his brain, a library of his mind. So what is, what is his cartographic thinking exactly at the start of the 16th century? Well, I think the best way to get at that question is to compare the Cartarina, which Waldseemuller made in 1516, with his 1507 map, uh, which is of a very similar format uh, and size. That is to say, it's printed on 12 sheets like the Cartarina, and it's it's the more famous of Waldseemuller's two large world maps. Uh, because it's largely because it's the first to apply the name America to the new world. And the two are on permanent display um, side by side in the Library of Congress. And uh, that, that exhibition is definitely worth a visit if one's in Washington. But what's remarkable to me is, is how large the change is between these two world maps made by the same cartographer. They're so similar in size and format in the course of just nine years. So the earlier map is uh, 
largely based on Ptolemy's geography uh, by way of a, a world map by Enrique Martellus. Uh, and, and in an earlier work, I showed that Waltzmiller borrowed a lot of material from uh, Martellus's world map. But anyway, uh, in the 1507 map, Waltzmiller proclaims his debt to, uh, to Ptolemy in various ways, not just with, through the title of the map, but also through an image of Ptolemy at the top of the map. And uh, he also, for example, shows all 360 degrees of the Earth's longitude, even though in 1507 that was something very bold to do. It preceded the European discovery of the Pacific, for example. And also the, the 1507 map uh, it has very few illustrations on it. Uh, there's an image of a parrot in South America, a ship off the coast of South America. There's an image of the city of Kinsai in China, but very few images. And it's remarkable how different the Carta Marina is made again by the same man just nine years later. So it's, it's no longer based on Ptolemy. So he's completely rejected uh, the primary cartographic inspiration of his earlier world map, the card marina is based on nautical charts, which were, uh, in essence, practical tools for navigation at sea. And in the early 16th century, Ptolemy's geographic data was about 1,200 years old, and the information available in contemporary nautical charts was far more accurate, and Waldseemiller recognized that. And so he changed the whole cartographic model that he used for his world map, which is, again, a remarkable change in the course of nine years. So he rejected Ptolemy as an authority, uh, and he used, instead of the, the grid of latitude and longitude uh, that Ptolemy had used, he used the system of rum lines, typical of nautical charts. He also changed his mind about the discovery of America. When he made his 1507 map, he was very uh, focused on the priority of Amerigo Vespucci. Um, and he came to realize that it was actually Columbus who was the first uh, European discoverer of the New World. And he makes that change clear in his 1516 map. Uh, so in the 1507 map, he, he calls the New World America. He actually abandons that name in the Carta Marina. And then finally, uh, the, the Carta Marina is just vastly richer in terms of illustrations. And in terms of, uh, in terms of Valtimeter's library of thought, to use your phrase, uh, he did extensive research uh, for the Carta Marina, uh, not only for descriptive texts to use on the map, but also illustrations. Uh, and... It, although there are descriptive texts on his 1507 map, uh, he uses very, very few of the same descriptive texts, almost none on his Carta Marina that he'd used on his 1507 map. So we get the a picture of a cartographer willing to set aside all his previous work in the interest of generating a new, more detailed, more modern image of the world in his Carta Marina. I think that's a pretty extraordinary story if you think about it during such a short amount of time from 1507 to 15, 
16 to have an individual scholar of of Waldsee Muller's depth and breadth in, in some ways change his mind. Uh, I, I like I like how you describe his his boldness. Um, in some ways, I, I think if we're trapped in the in the modern or postmodern world, um, scholars write about the same topic for their entire careers. They in many ways reproduce the same articles for thirty and forty years. So I, I think it's an extraordinary feat. Uh, this almost like a Copernican revolution, the shift. Um, from from ancient to modern, and, and I think I, I, I want to ask a, a little bit more about that because your your book is actually amazing. I think in its source analysis, can you can you tell us about some of the antecedents and and the sources that you have found, including the the nautical charts that I think go all the way back to the late thirteenth century. How, how did you, how did you trace those and, and, and with all of the languages that you know and, and use in the book? Uh, well, that that was uh, tracing the sources was one of uh, my main undertakings with this project. And Voltimiller very generously has uh, a large uh, text block, a cartouche on the map, where he lists many of his sources. Uh, but no one had gone through and tried to determine which sources were he used for which texts on the map. Uh, so uh, I, I had that aid, if you will, from Waldseemuller himself, uh, that, that list of sources. Um, but <clears throat> having that list, uh, it, it certainly makes the job of tracing the sources of individual descriptive texts easier, uh, but it was still a job. And uh, it turns out that Waldseemuller does not list all of his sources um, right. in, that, right. in, that, in that cartouche. Um, and so try, trying to find, uh, there, there are, I think, two or three texts on the map whose sources I still don't know. I can't figure out, despite a very extensive searching, I still can't figure out where he got uh, those, um, those texts. And I, but there were, well, I should say that one thing in the, in the course of the project, I came to, uh, I came to realize that it was just as important to look at the source of Valtzi Miller's images as his texts. They, it really didn't make sense to do one without the other. And uh, for example, in, in South America, uh, we have the earliest surviving European representation of an opossum. And Waldseemuller certainly copied it from somewhere, uh, but that source does not survive. And that's to be expected uh, over the course of time uh, manuscripts and, and printed books uh, are, are lost. And so it's, it's not surprising that we don't know the source that Voltsimiller copied his image of the opossum from. And it's not surprising that there are some texts on the map whose, whose sources, well, maybe, the, maybe his sources survive, but I just couldn't find them. But it's also possible that the, the sources no longer survive. Yeah, I, I and I want to come back and ask you a lot of questions about the opossum and the walruses and the cartouches and monsters and such because I think 
um, you are the right person to ask about that, ha- having written about uh, sea monsters and, and medieval and modern maps. I, I'm actually, uh, in reading the book, stunned by the diversity of um, the textual sources. I, I know that you're paying a lot of attention to the sources that he left out, but even the ones that he arranges in chronic, chronological order, it's a very colorful cast of characters, um, in, including Marco, Marco Polo, of course, the Venetian traveler, but you know, there are papal, there are papal legates, for example, there are Italian missionaries and, and diplomats who end up in the Middle East and India. There are French cardinals who are really like uh, cosmographers who influence Christopher Columbus. Um, there are Venetian merchants and navigators and Jewish merchants and so on. So I, I guess, really, how, how do you weigh the travel narratives I would ask the textual sources against those things which are more visual, as you mentioned, like like the like the famed opossum. Way way in what sense? Well, uh, let's say how I mean, how do you know how visual Waldsi Mueller was compared to how how textual he is? Because this is it seems like a very extensive inventory, and and a lot of those travel narratives go back to the to the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, so. Where, where do you place the the, pre, the priority? Is it is it visual or is it textual? How how do you balance that out? Uh, that that's a, a, a good and, and challenging question. Um, I'm I'm trying to think of of spots on the map where uh, where he shows preference for something visual over something textual or vice versa. Uh, and I'm I'm not coming up with anything, um, but it's perhaps worth saying that that there are, there are plenty of descriptive texts on his 1507 map, uh, whereas as I said, there are very few illustrations. So it, it seems that over time, uh, he he took a greater interest in uh, in in illustrating his maps, his his world maps. And another feature of the Cardinal Marina that plays into that that I didn't mention earlier is that while the 1507 map shows all 360 degrees of the Earth's circumference and goes runs all the way to the North Pole, that is not the case on his Cardinal Marina. Uh, the the Cardinal Marina does not show all 360 degrees of the Earth's circumference and does not run all the way to the North Pole. And so it's showing less of the Earth's surface, and in, in, at the same time, it's the same size basically as the 1507 map, which means that it's showing a zoomed-in, uh, if you will, image of the world, which entails that Waldseemuller had more space for, for for each given region of the world. He had more space to work with, which means that there was more room for illustrations. Right, and I don't know. It's hard to 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 have any confidence uh, trying to answer the question of which came first. Was it that he wanted to show uh, less of the Earth's surface to have more room for illustrations because he he'd come to realize that that was an important way to not only convey information but also make a map attractive, or was it that he decided uh, to 
to make his new map of a different character, which is to say, to emphasize the parts of the world about which things were known to make it a more uh, practical rather than theoretical map. And that that was what allowed him the extra space to include illustrations. Is it possible, judging from the comparison between 1507 and, and 1516, to figure out his interest in world politics? Are you, a, are you able, through the breaking down the images of sovereigns and sovereign states, um, to, to discern what, what would be called maybe today geopolitics? I, I know this is, this is very anachronistic to project it backwards, but what, what, what was he concerned with? What did he? What were his interests in world politics? Um, I, I would think it's it's fair to say that he his interests were placed rather in world religion uh, rather than politics. So we, to my recollection, we we don't get any uh, sense of uh, an interest in in intra-European political rivalries, for example. Uh, but he does show a great interest in the religions of the world and the boundaries between uh, the different religions. So uh, he uses little crescents to indicate areas that are controlled by Muslims and little crosses to indicate areas that are controlled by Christians when, when there's a question about it, particularly in Asia. So he doesn't, he doesn't bother with the crosses in Europe, for example, but in Asia, he does use those symbols to uh, distinguish uh, regions that are under the control of of, uh, of Islam and, and Christianity. And he very uh, frequently uh, in, in his uh, descriptive texts uh, talks about the religion of the inhabitants of a particular region. And he also makes remarks about their political structure. Um, but uh, it, it doesn't seem – it seems to be they, – they seem to be remarks more of an ethnographic nature than, uh, than considering uh, what relation their political structure might have to, to Europe, uh, for example. Right. And would you say that the animals – you mentioned the opossum, and I think you do a, a great job – tracing the image, especially after Waldsee Muller, so in, into, into Münster and into Mercator, what, what are some of the symbolic meanings or, or let's say iconographic meanings of, of elephants and walruses and sea monsters and, and opossums? How do you see that in Waldsee Muller and, and beyond Waldsee Muller? Um, if... To, to I, I think the case where the symbol, symbolism is, is the clearest and most important uh, is, is precisely in uh, the realm of sea monsters. Um, and this, I think, also uh, addresses in part your question about geopolitics, actually. Um, so on his, his earlier map, the 1507 map, he doesn't have images of sea monsters, but he does have some texts about sea monsters in the Indian Ocean. And uh, they, as it happens, the, the texts come from, uh, well, they, they come from Enriquez Martellus' world map, but were taken by Martellus from 
this book called the Hortus Sanitatis, which is sort of a, a compendium of information about uh, animals and, and monsters and also uh, precious stones. And most of the sources of that book are uh, medieval. And so the, the texts on the 1507 map say the, the, the sort of thing about sea monsters that, that we would expect from a medieval source, um, which is to say that the, the sea is depicted as a relatively hostile element. Uh, there, there are, the texts make it clear that there are dangerous creatures lurking beneath yeah. the waves. I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the case is very different on his Cartamarina. Um, there's the image of the walrus uh, in Scandinavia, which strangely uh, looks like an elephant. And thus, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's explicitly identified as a walrus, and yet it looks like an elephant. And um, it's interesting to speculate about the, the source of that mistake. Uh, but the only sea monster depicted in the sea uh, <clears throat> is off the southern tip of Africa. And it, it's this a wonderful image of King Manuel of Portugal riding a sea monster. And this is a symbolic uh, representation of Portugal's control of the sea route from Portugal south around the tip of Africa to Asia. So that's, that's the function of that image. So Portugal has mastered that sea route. Um, but I, I think we can go further in interpreting the image um, and see among the many changes from Valtiller's 1507 map to his Marina, uh, a remarkable shift even in Valtiller's conception of the ocean. Uh, so on the, the 1507 map, as I said, the, the, the texts indicate that the ocean is a, a place of danger filled with hostile creatures. Whereas what we see on the Cartamarina is this powerful image of a human controlling a sea monster. And, and that is used to express human domination of the oceans in the sense that the ocean has gone from being a place of danger to a venue for the conduct of trade uh, across which uh, humans can evidently cross with some confidence. Uh, rather than being terrified <clears throat> by sea monsters, which seems to be the suggestion of the 1507 map, uh, that this is an element that, that humans can control for their own purposes. So again, a remarkable change uh, between the two maps and, and indicated very succinctly by this powerful image. Could you talk a little bit about his attention to religion some more. I, I know you have a lot of wonderful secondary sources about cosmography and ethnography. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's the work of Marshall Poe, which focuses on Muscovy and descriptions of Muscovy. Um, there's also Stephanie Leitch, I think, who, who has a book about ethnography in, in early modern Germany. So uh, how, I mean, how do these cosmographic and ethnographic descriptions work when it's when it comes to describing say uh, trading centers in India or uh, the image of, of Medina 
um, or Islamic architecture. Do, do you see those things present in the Waldsee Mueller's cartographic thinking? Well, uh, as I said, he, he definitely had a strong interest in religion. Um, his his uh, description of uh, of Mecca is is borrowed from the German traveler Varthema, for example. Um, you mentioned the spice trade, um, and one of the, the there's, there's no I don't. I'm not recalling any religious uh, element to his discourse about the spice trade, but it, it perhaps is worth saying a, a few words about that uh, part of the map, which is one of the longest texts on the map. Uh, it's in the lower right-hand corner, and it's an amazing list of the prices and sources of spices available in Calicut, India. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And it raises very interesting questions about the intended audience uh, of the map. Uh, so it, it doesn't seem, uh, although it is proclaimed by its title to be a nautical chart, it doesn't seem that the map was really intended to be taken aboard ship and used for navigation. Uh, and so what is, if, if the information about the prices of spices was not something that was supposed to guide one uh, through negotiations, being in Calicut, um, what was the, the intended audience for that information? Um, and the only thing I can think of is that Waldseemuller thought that that information would give context uh, to the prices of spices available at, at markets in Europe, uh, that, that he, I suppose he thought that it would be interesting for viewers of the map uh, to, to be able to make that comparison and appreciate the markups that, that took place uh, in the transport of the spices uh, to Europe. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Do you see the shift toward nautical charts? You mentioned rum lines, for example, and, and his attention to what I would call hydrography as an, as an abandonment of, of Ptolemy, because there, there is longitude and latitude, after all, if you, if you go back to Ptolemy, but how how is he modernizing this practice? I guess would be my my real question because, you know, he he is wanting the nautical charts to be more of a kind of grid system, right? 
<clears throat> yes. So, so the chart is, is a bit of a hybrid. So it doesn't have a complete grid of latitude and longitude the way that his 1507 map does. Um, what, what it does have is uh, the equator and the tropics and along the equator, there are some indications of longitude, a few, but not in a systematic way. Um, so, and, and I think to some extent, it's very intellectually honest of him not to include that grid, uh, mm. not, not to pretend to a precision uh, that he knew his, his data couldn't support. That's interesting. So you you would describe it not as a, a weakness of his scholarship, but as a sort of moment of humility. I I, I would. I, I I he just he knew uh, that the the maps he were he was using as, as sources were not based on uh, on on determinations of longitude in the New World, for example. It should be. We should mention, though, that there are some sections of the map where uh, a, a grid has been imposed by the map's earliest owner. So, for example, on um, in parts of South America, we can see a, a carefully a careful grid of red lines, <clears throat> um, and these were laid down by Johann Schoner, uh, the the humanist and geographer and cartographer who owned uh, the only surviving copies of the 1507 and 1516 map that have come down to us. And Schoener, well, I, I should say that wall maps in general do not survive well. So right, right, right. The, the intention was that the 12 sheets would be basically pasted to the wall and, and then one remodels years later uh, and the map goes away. But but Johann Schoener explicitly preserved uh, these maps uh, for posterity. Uh, he had he had the sheets of the maps tipped into uh, a book so that they would be preserved for posterity. And in as part of his own cartographic projects, uh, Schoener made a globe. Uh, in 1515 that was based on Fultonino's 1515, 1507 map. And he also made a globe in 1520 that was based on Fultonino's Cartarina. And I believe, I, I think it's difficult to doubt that this grid system that we see uh, on parts, this red grid system we see on parts of the Cartarina were placed there uh, by Johann Schoener Precisely so that he could transfer cartographic information from the Cartarina to his globe. Mm. And mm. so this is not what's not happening here is a pretense that there is this great precision uh, that 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 Volsimo's depiction of the new world is, in fact, based on uh, observations of longitude. It's just uh a tool for transferring the information from the map to a globe. Yeah, I, I have to say, as a historian of cartography, I'm I'm many times struck by the arrogance of graphic designers and I would say newspapers, where 
you will read on the Washington in the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Guardian things like this is the one map you will need to describe X, Y, and Z. And I think if you look back at the 16th century, um, you know, I remember as a graduate student reading Bob Caro's work about map map makers and their maps and and looking at Ortelius and and Hanjus. There, there is this moment of deep skepticism where a cartographer will say, I actually, I I don't know this, or I, I don't have the sources. Um, and, and I think for res- for researchers, this will really be my next question. It 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 requires so much deep source analysis and and scrutiny. So for you, I, I I have to ask because you know all of these languages and and you've read you know people like Leo Bagrov his his work on the Carta Marina of of Frise. How how do you begin discriminating? as well as taking that deep skepticism into account? It, it, it's more of a philosophical question because I, I would imagine that you, you have looked at more 16th century maps than probably anyone in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've, I have spent a, a fair uh, bit of time doing that, but, but what, discriminating between what? What, what, uh, what do you mean? Well, uh, discriminating between, um, let's say, the, the people who are doing um, research in the, in the 20th century on a lot of these Cartamarina maps, and then those who, you know, like Honjus uh, would be my example, he has this wall map from the end of the 16th century, or Mercator's famous 1569 map, you know, it, it is a kind of idea of progress. What what we know now from what we know then, it's the it's the old quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, or maybe between the moderns and the postmoderns. So, how how do you? I mean, how do you take the skepticism of the of the sixteenth century map makers into account? Their their errors and and what they know and what they don't. Mm. Uh, well, it's it's a very engaging question. The 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 the, the, the skepticism and credulity credulity of of early cartographers and and the Italian cartographer uh, Fra Mauro um, uh, can can be very skeptical uh, about his sources. So rather than just electing not to use a particular source, he engages with it and says that he doesn't believe uh, this, this account. Um, Waldseemler uh, was certainly very selective in, in using his sources. And that's another aspect of the map that we can uh, access by comparing the two maps, uh, the 1507 and 1516. Um, for example, uh, so that the, the 1507 map is is largely based on Ptolemy, uh, but Ptolemy did not know Eastern Asia, and so for Eastern Asia, Boltzmiller relied on uh, Enricus Martellus's world map, and Martellus relied on Marco Polo, uh, so which was one of the best sources about East Asia available when. Uh, Martellus was making his map. So there's a lot of Marco Polo on the 1507 map in East Asia. There is very little 
uh, Marco Polo in East Asia on the Carta Marina. Uh, there's just really a handful or maybe two hands full of, of descriptive texts that uh, rely on Marco Polo. And why is that? Why did, uh, why did Voltimiller abandon all this information that he already had at hand that he could so easily have used in his Carta Marina based on Marco Polo? And the simple answer was, is that he had more recent sources and, and sources that he considered more reliable um, and that was one of the exciting things, uh, about tracing the sources of his descriptive texts is that that's the only way to get at how he was making use of his sources is by tracing the source of, of each of the texts and seeing, and, and looking at cases where, well, for information about this part of the coast, he could have chosen from this author or this author or this author. In fact, he chose from this one. And then one has the opportunity to think about what might have been the basis of that choice. And one thing that becomes clear uh, in, in making that analysis uh, was his reliance on the Italian traveler, uh, Ludovico Varthema. Uh, and it's... Um, one can imagine uh, that his uh, choice of Varthema so frequently uh, was precisely because uh, Varthema's narrative was so recent uh, that th this was the latest information available. And it also, I'm sure it also uh, was important that, that Varthema is a very careful observer. Um, but I really think that the recentness of Varthema's narrative uh, was a very important factor in Voltimer's choice uh, to use his work whenever he could. And another aspect of that is that the, an edition of Varthema's work uh, was published with illustrations in 1515. So one year before uh, Voltimer's Cartagena was printed and Waldseemiller borrowed a number of illustrations from that edition of Varthema. And I think that bespeaks uh, an interest again in, in using the most recent sources available. Yeah. And, and I, I would say in providing the images, as you've done in this open access book, Chet, um, you've, you've really um, helped us as researchers along where we can consider the images juxtaposed next to each other and maybe from there determine which sources were available to someone like Valdsi Muller and, and which weren't. So uh, to, to me, as a Russian historian, I, I'm, I'm really impressed by how you took, a, took apart, let's say, the details of the Carta Marina where there are these descriptions of, of Russia or, or descriptions of Novgorod, for example, Moscow. Um, and I wondered if I might ask a little bit about that. So, um, you know, you do trace um, sources back to the, to the 15th and 16th centuries. Is there, is there any kind of revelation that you found in working on this book about what Valtzi Müller could and could not use or what sources maybe that others had thought he was using, which you, upon 
further careful scrutiny determined could could not have been possible. Uh, yes. Well, I, I'll begin by saying that uh, Russia is is definitely one of the most challenging uh, parts of the map, uh, and. I, 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 I don't have all the answers uh, to the sources with regard to the sources he was using. Um, it's another part of the map where he, he, he clearly had access to something uh, that either has not survived or uh, I have not been able to identify. Uh, so Leo Bagro and his work on the Carter Marina um, indicated that um, many of the, the toponyms suggest that the data was supplied from a series of itineraries to Moscow, of travel narratives going to Moscow. Um, but he, for some reason, didn't look at the descriptive texts, um, uh, which, which I think was a, a bit of a lost opportunity. Um, and I, I also want to say that in, in looking at Russia, I had uh, considerable help uh, from my colleague and friend Leonid Chekin, uh, who is uh, an expert in in Russian cartography and Russian textual sources. Well, what wonderful scholar, really, a wonderful scholar. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, in in doing your work on on Northern Asia, let's not just call it Russia, but um, in Northern Asia or Northeastern Asia. Um, could you, could you tell our listeners about some of the borders and border lines that, that you see in comparing the 1507 and 1516 maps? So, um, you know, I worked in, in Moscow when I did my research with Alexei Postnikov and I, I remember, you know, he had told me all of these wonderful stories about the, the Pamir and the work um, on, on sort of delineating frontiers between Russia and India, thinking about the Tatar Empire. Um, do you see from from studying the Carta Marina so closely at the at the Library of Congress um, particular things about uh, this, say, nor- Northeast Asian or Northern Asian realm that, that others had missed? I'm uh, I'm trying to pull up a, an image of the whole map here. Yeah. Uh, just give me one second. In all of in all of the twelve forms. So I mean, you know, the the Tatar Empire is so is so interesting because when we're talking about this period, um, there are plenty of legends from the travelers' accounts for for Tataria um, from from people like Herberstein. So what 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 did you find? Let's say in uh, in doing research on on that part of the map and looking into looking into Asia. Yes, well, uh, it, as you say, the Valtimiller was very conscious of the borders in that uh, region of the world, and particularly in 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 laying out in delineating uh, the borders of Tartaria, uh, which is something that he. He, he did not do on his 1507 map. He, he didn't show uh, that same uh, close interest in, uh, in determining those borders and in marking them as, as clearly as he does 
on his 1516 map. And let me zoom in here. I now have the image. So he uses, again, this system of crosses and crescents mm -hmm. uh, to delineate those, uh, to delineate, to separate uh, Tartaria uh, from regions further to the west. And he's quite consistent with that system uh, in Asia. And I wanted to look at one other border. So the, the, the borders are there, uh, but they don't always leap out at us. Uh, and it's partly because uh, there is this system of, of rum lines uh, that, that appear in bodies of water. So there are these lines crisscrossing bodies of water. Uh, and then we also have these border lines in the land. And, and somehow the, the, the presence of the rum lines, I think, uh, makes us uh, not necessarily focus on uh, the, the, the borders as, as much as we should. Um, but I'm looking for one particular border I wanted to talk about uh, where the, the distinction uh, between here it is. Um, he there's there's a case where the depiction of the monstrous races where the the, the border plays uh, an important role there are actually two depictions of the kunokephali with the the um here we go the uh, dog-headed men and so there's an uh, India was was famous for being the the home of well many wonders and and also of the so-called Plinian monstrous races and rather unusually despite that long tradition of uh, associating India with these monstrous races uh, I couldn't come up with an example of another map where the monstrous races are sort of programmatically depicted in India the way that Waldseemuller does. But they, he actually has two depictions of uh, Kuno Kefali. Uh, there's one in northern India where two dog-headed men are talking with each other. And then there's another one, strangely, not, not all that far away uh, in the east, and it turns out that he has two depictions of uh, the Kunu Kefli because he was using two different sources uh, for these uh, two depictions. And uh, the, the one uh, depiction of the Kunu Kefli talking with each other comes from Pierre Dailly, uh, the French uh, theologian and, and geographer. And the, the other comes from an account of a battle uh, that the Tartars had with dog-headed men. Um, and uh, and the, they were unable to conquer the dog-headed men. And so the, the dog-headed men are depicted, in this case, just inside, uh, just, uh, just outside of Tartaria, I should say, just inside this border that separates India from Tartaria. Um, so it's an interesting case, uh, revealing case, not only in terms of uh, Voltimus' use of sources, but also his attention to that border uh, between Tartaria and, and India and, and doing, everything, doing everything in his power uh, to place that border correctly.
even even extending down to the location of, of you know basically fantastic monstrous races yeah and and i i actually like um the fact that you're again focusing on his his placement of of kings for example like mythical kings and um the trading centers he's obviously very concerned with um trading centers throughout uh, throughout India and, and, you know, sort of like along the Western Indian ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a, a really important clue, uh, that you find to his, his cartographical thinking in, in a broader sense. Um, and, and, you know, I, because you talk so much, not just about Russia, but about, uh, the other sections of Western Africa, for example, um, I would imagine that you're able to find a, a sort of basic ethnographical pattern, right? Where he, he's actually zeroing in on something in, in one region and then there's a kind of copy in another. Am, am I right about that? Uh, well, he, he certainly did. Uh, I, th- I think it's worth saying a few words about his interest in trade. Um, uh, and I think, I think that the, the map does show a strong interest in trade, and I think that's to be seen in relation uh, with the map's relatively pragmatic uh, orientation, let's say, in contrast with the 1507 map, which is, is more theoretical. So again, in the Cartamarina, he only shows the, the parts of the world that were known in some convincing way. and And there is this interest in... Uh, in the, the parts of the world that can be reached and and the parts of the world where trade is conducted. And that that image, again, of King Manuel riding the sea monster speaks to to both of those things. Um, so so there is a strong interest in trade. there's there's a constant reference to where uh, spices and precious stones uh, can be obtained. There's the, the long list of uh, spices in the lower right-hand corner. Um, and, but, but as far as uh, finding similar things in different parts of the map, were you referring to uh, the images of sovereigns, for example? Or? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of kings, for example, who don't exist, <laughs> right? Um, yes. So that, that's something that I see in Waldsee Mueller. Yes. Uh, it, there's a lot of anachronisms uh, and at, at least, I mean, I, I think we need to be uh, a, a little kind in that he was, he was working with the sources that were available to him and uh, that, you know, if, if, if the, the source text was written 300 years ago and he didn't have anything else, he would, uh, he, he might mention that King uh, as if that king were were still in power, right? Um, right. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I like. I mean, I like the fact that you are fair to him in context in the in the early 16th century. I think it, it would be easy to be very judgmental, as as I am in my world, stuck between the 1870s and the 1950s. <laughs> um, you, you know, we all. I guess we all have have our, our have our zeitgeist to describe. Um, I want to turn turn in my last question to what you're working on now, and and maybe if you could say a few words as a historian of cartography about 
the importance of, of open sources and, and, and open, mm. open source writing. Yes. Well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll again take the, the second question first. So the book is available in open access and it is 100% through the generosity of the, the J.I. Kislak Foundation uh, in Florida. And my, my debt to the Kislak Foundation is, is very extensive uh, in this and other work. Um, so my research uh, for this work was uh, supported by a, a Kislak uh, fellowship at the Library of Congress. Um, and of course, it was it was Mr. Kislak who bought the Carter Marina and and donated it to the Library of Congress. So it was only th there through his generosity. Then I had the fellowship from the Kislak Foundation. And then as the, the book was approaching publication, uh, the, the Kislak Foundation uh, made funds available, uh, again, very generously to make the book available open access. And I it was such a, a generous gesture on their part. And uh, again, my, my goal with the book was to make the map available uh, to bo both the scholars and the general public in a way that it just hadn't been before. So now all the descriptive texts on the map are uh, are totally available uh, with remarks about their sources, even if one doesn't know Latin. But by making the book available and open access, the Kislak Foundation has gone a huge step further in making the, the map available to everyone in just such a wonderful way. And I should say that in addition to the, the PDF of the book, there are also some online supplementary materials, specifically high resolution images, both of the whole map and all of the sheets of the map. So that uh, my, my hope is that together, uh, the book itself and the online supplementary materials uh, and the fact that they're all of it freely available uh, will really open up this map uh, for for use in, in many different ways, including ways that I would haven't thought of and, and wouldn't think of, which is, is where the, the wonderful richness comes in. I'm Steven Siegel, and we've been speaking with Chet Van Duzer on New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Chet is the author of Martin Waldse Muller's Carta Marina of 1516, Study and Transcription, of the Long Legends. The book is published by Springer, open access in 2020. Thank you, Chet, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Stephen. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 